Good morning. We're a bit slim this morning. It's okay. Please uh, keep your Bibles open um, as we go through this passage. Uh, there's a lot here that I won't be covering. Um, uh, but also, um, as we go through this passage, um, if you have questions or if anything kind of comes out that's not clear, um, make a note of it. Uh, there'll be a time to um, ask those questions as we go through the passage. Uh, so let's pray before we hear from God's Word. Heavenly Father, we come now to hear from you. We come to see, to experience, to feel, to meet with you. And we ask that as we look once again at your word, that you might do that. And so we just want commit our morning to you, commit our time now, and ask that you will speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Whoops. I don't know about you, uh, but I don't feel as though I deserve a second chance. I've screwed up too many times, I've hurt too many people, I've messed things up, and I don't deserve it. And yet, when I pause to reflect, I'm awestruck by the unbelievable love mercy and grace that God chooses to show me. Sometimes, if not most of the time, I still find that hard to believe. I don't deserve it. And if you were to be honest, I wonder, do you ever feel undeserving? As you look around your life, you feel like you don't deserve the relationships and people that you have around you. Or maybe you find yourself going through a difficult season and you do think you deserve it. You deserve the pain and the consequences of your actions and your choices. Perhaps you question why God would have anything to do with you. Why anyone would have anything to do with you. Let alone a holy God who might choose to bless you, guide you, and use you for his glory and purpose. But whatever you feel right now, I want to invite you to explore this passage and see how God responds. How does he respond to a people undeserving of his grace and what it means for his covenant relationship with them? And so if you've been with us through Exodus, we pick up uh, with the Israelites. Uh, Moses has gone up to the mountain, he's gone for a long time, and the people end up resorting to idolatry. Uh, the resulting golden calf and the idolatrous festivities result in God's anger and their near destruction. But as we saw last time, Moses intercedes between God and the people, and after a series and process of petitions, God relents and agrees to continue in his journey with his people. By the end of chapter 33, uh, we see Moses before God, requesting to see his glory. And this is where we pick up. 
Moses, having shattered the stone tablets on the golden calf, now goes up to the mountain again. He's got fresh tablets in hand and he journeys up the mountain to meet with God and receive the law and the commandments. The conditions are much the same as the first time, uh, which you can read back in chapters 19. No one comes with him. No one comes near the mountain and not even the animals are near, near to, uh, fit, uh, to, to um, take a feed around the mountain. Preparations are made as Moses goes to meet with God. And God promises to go with his people. But the first thing we see here is the giving of the law and commandments. And I suspect there's questions. Is this what it comes back down to? Are God's promises conditional on keeping the law and the commandments? Now I want you to hold that thought as we continue to unpack what's going on. At the end of the last chapter, Moses requested to see God's glory, and there's a brief description of that. But we see this unfolding here. And what I find interesting, I don't know if you've picked this up, but the, the description isn't about the visual experience. It's not about what Moses sees. What we're told is what he hears. He hears God proclaim his name. God reveals his glory by proclaiming who he is, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Don't rush past this revelation. Just sit on it for a moment and just absorb who God is. The Lord, Yahweh, the I Am, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving, not leaving the guilty unpunished. This revelation of God results in worship. Moses bows to the ground as he hears God's glory. God's glory revealed in his character. He is a just God who doesn't ignore the wrongdoing. And we saw this play out in the golden calf. God passed judgment on those who were guilty. But even in the face of wickedness, rebellion and sin, there's compassion and grace and forgiveness for all who might come humbly before him. But I want to just unpack this point for a brief moment. See, forgiveness doesn't automatically cancel out the consequences of sin. Because with sin, there is consequence. And in some cases, the influence of sin lasts generations to the third and fourth generation. The scars of a broken family, the mental trauma of past hurts, these things can span generations. We see this play out on the world stage 
Is the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in Gaza, the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, the tensions that underlie different nations in Asia like China and Japan. Sin can have this ongoing effect. And in the light of the idolatry around the golden calf, Moses intercedes again. Just as he's been doing through these past chapters, he intercedes again for the people. Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Moses' request to see God's glory is revealed here in his character. But it's not just for Moses, it's for all of the people. This revelation of his character is proof of his promise that he will keep it, that he will go with them. And we saw last time that every petition that Moses made drew God closer to his people. And at the end of the last chapter, though, God was still at an arm's reach. His tent was outside of the camp. But here, this petition here, God comes to be with his people. And if you have the ESV, I like the way that they translate it. The Lord will not only go with his people, but he will go in their midst. And this was the original plan. Not just for Israel, but right from the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, God walked in the midst of his people. The intention and design of the tabernacle was that it would be in the midst, in the middle of the Israelites' camp. God was always intending to go in the midst of his people, not just to go alongside at an arm's reach, but to go with his people. And so God, Moses petitions God, don't, don't keep us at an arm's length anymore. Don't be far from us. Be with us. Be in our midst. I wonder if that petition, that prayer resonates with you at all. Do you long to know and to feel God's presence? How will God answer Moses' prayer? Before we go on, just want to give you a chance to ask any questions, anything that wasn't clear there. Which part do you want me to summarize? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, What we see here and what we see through Scripture is that sin has consequences. And though God forgives us of sin, sometimes the consequences of sin last. And so forgiveness doesn't cancel out the consequences. Sometimes we still have to live with the consequences. And so in certain cases, that sin has an ongoing effect. Now, there's redemption in that. There's, There's grace in all of that. But it doesn't cancel out some of the consequences. Now, sometimes God is extremely gracious, and he does, and he intervenes. But sometimes we continue to bear uh, the consequences of sin. Does that help, Gary?
Sure. Sure, sure. It's all about God going with his people. Yeah. Yeah, so last time what we saw is that God wanted nothing to do with his people. He wanted to destroy them, right? But Moses intercedes. And every time that Moses intercedes, God drew closer, right? God draws closer to his people. And at the end of the last chapter, we see that God is outside of the camp. And, and actually, I think a lot of people end up in that place. A lot of people, as they walk this journey of faith, they, they slowly draw closer to God, but it gets to a point where it stops. Because what we see here is something deeply intimate, deeply precious, that God will be in the midst of his people. He will be right at the heart of life and everything that's going on. And that's what he invites us into. Does that better answer your question, Gary? I think we fear intimacy with God. But let's keep going. We'll unpack that more. Okay. God says that he will be in the midst of his people That is Moses' petition. How will God answer that? We pick up in verse 10. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. God renews this covenant with his people. Despite everything they've done, despite the events of the golden calf, God will keep his promise. The promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The very promises Moses puts before God when he felt like destroying them. And just as he did in Egypt, God will work through his people to display his wonder. He will do awesome things for the people so that the world will see. They will be blessed by God, not simply for their own sake, but so that the world would see his glory. And what does God ask in response to this? He says, obey the commands you hear today. But there's, there's more behind this word. Because this word obey is describes someone who keeps watch at night. The God who protects something important. The one who seeks to preserve something precious. So what are his people to observe, to obey, to keep, to watch, to guard? I think what we see here is that they are meant to protect their unique relationship with God. Because what you get in the following verses is not just a set of laws and commands but rather that he is making a covenant with a people that will act on his behalf, where he will do things in their midst and he will bless them. And in doing so, the world will see his wonder and his glory. And that was the problem with the golden calf. It made them just like everyone else. 
They worshipped just like everyone else. They became corrupt just like everyone else. They trusted in these false gods to meet their needs just like everyone else. And ultimately, they trusted in an idol made by their own hands just like everyone else. Therefore, observe what I command you today. Don't make a covenant with the world. Don't let them lead you astray. Don't make idols. Keep the festivals. Redeem the firstborn. Remember the Sabbath. Keep your sacrifices from being mixed. And there's nothing new here. These are all commandments that have been repeated, given already. The first time Moses went up on the mountain. It's just a summary of the key differences between Israel and the other nations, especially following what happened with the golden calf. And what are these things meant to reflect? What are they meant to observe in all of this? That the world will lead them astray. Here is God who is inviting them to life. So follow him. They are worshipping the one true God, Yahweh. Worship Him alone. No, no idols, nothing else. The festivals, the Sabbath, are a reminder that God provides. And all of these things set them apart. Set them apart from the rest of the world, from the people around them. And these are the things that Moses records on the tablet. A record for his people a record of his covenant, despite their unfaithfulness and their worship of idols. Because he is. He is the Lord who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Any questions after that? All right. As you hear the Lord's name proclaimed, how do you receive it? Do you receive it gladly? Or do you hesitate? Do you doubt? How could a holy God deal with me, a sinner, a rebel, a failure? Do you feel undeserving of the grace and mercy on offer? The repeated offer of forgiveness and grace week after week. But what we see here is what the covenant is truly about. It is about the Lord. It is about Yahweh, the I Am. And His covenant with His people reveals how He'll do that through them to the world. His people are a window to the world to see God. This year, uh, Subaru launched a special edition range of cars to celebrate 50 years in Australia. There's some special badges, there's some unique decorative features inside, you get some blue stitching on the seats, and boasting rights for buyers and collectors. But really, there's nothing functionally different about the cars. I think one model has upgraded speakers, and that's it. 
they're, they're essentially the same as all the other cars. It's just marketing. It's a special occasion, but it's really just marketing. And you'll probably pay two, three times the price in 20 years' time for these cars because they're special editions. See, there's a similarity there between what it means for Israel to be the chosen people of God and what it means to be Christians today. We're kind of like special editions. We're actually no different to the world. We're flesh and bone. We're sinful. We're, we're in need of God just like everyone else. We're not any different in ourselves. What makes us special? What makes us different then? What sets us apart? It's not us. It's got nothing to do with us. It's marketing. If I can, if I can stretch this analogy a little bit, it's marketing. It's the gospel marketing our relationship with God. It's what God does in us and through us that makes us special. The gospel is what is special, not us. And in the same way that God works in and through Israel to be a blessing to the world, God works in and through the gospel in us that we might be a window for the world to see who he is. And it's this covenant that God, by his grace, chooses to make known to us in Jesus. It's as we come to Jesus, as we receive a new life, a new spirit and a new purpose, that makes anything special. It's not us. It doesn't make us more or less human. It doesn't make us any more or less divine. We're not special. It's the gospel that makes anything different. And so God does this in and through us so that the world might be invited to see this relationship, this covenant relationship that we and they can have with him. But see, here's the thing. The gospel isn't a limited run. It's an open invitation for everyone to come and hear and respond to God's embrace, to hear his mercy and invitation to be with him. To that end, though, we are called to be holy. The Israelites were called to faithful worship and trust in God. And I suspect most of us want to live that kind of life. We want to live a holy life. But how do we do that? I want to go back to verse 12. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or there will be a snare among you. And this word treaty here is the same word for covenant. Be careful not to make a treaty, a covenant with the world. They will be a snare among you. And see, we can't avoid living in the world or interacting with the world. But we do need to be careful then how we relate with them. We live by a different standard. We hold different values. We pursue different purposes in life. And at one point, I had to make a choice to stop hanging out and going out with a particular group of friends because of the activities and choices they made. Because I could see the way that they were influencing the way that I treated and viewed other people around me. And so the same question exists. Who or what influences you? And this means that there may be difficult questions about how we relate to the world around us. 
It might be that we need to choose to disengage from certain activities. It might be that we choose how and where we spend time with certain people. And it may very well be that those people consider themselves Christians, just like my friends were. Don't forget that the people who instigated the golden calf were Israelites too. They were part of God's people. To be holy may mean making difficult choices about how we relate to the world around us. And that's the danger. The danger of the world is the idols and the gods they worship. The gods of influence, success, power, approval, comfort, control, money, family, careers, and so on. And in and of themselves, they are neither good or bad. They have no power or influence. But the world is deceived and deceives others into thinking these gods have power to change lives. The Israelites were commanded to break down altars, smash sacred stones, and cut down religious poles. They were to get rid of these influences in their presence. And so we are to get rid of these influences, these idols that exist in our lives. And where do we start? How do you identify these idols? Well, what do you daydream about? What do you fear? What gives you purpose? What causes irrational anger, anxiety, or guilt? What do you spend your resources on? Your energy, your money, or your time? Mine is control. Control of my destiny, my work, my kids' behavior, the future, the list goes on. And on the surface, it looks well-intentioned. I want my life and I want my work to bring glory to God, but on my terms. I want my kids to fit in in their social groups in the way that I think they should. I want things to be successful, whatever that means. Underlying all of this desire for control is a lack of trust in God to keep his promises. Promises that he will do things in and through his people, including me. And so we repent. We are to repent of our idols, surrender them to God, and ask him to replace them with his peace and joy. This process we call sanctification doesn't happen overnight. So patience is needed. It's a lifelong process. As we pursue holiness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Do you want to clarify that question? Hmm. Actually, nobody knows the answer to this one. Um, what I suspect, though, is this is something that the other nations did. I suspect there's some religious practice uh, that other nations were engaging in, and they were just set, commanded, don't do this. Yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> but I think the general sense is 
what, what sets these people apart, right? What, what sets these people apart? And that's the same for us today. What sets us apart? And there, there are things that are timeless. There are things that will never change in human nature. But there is also a wisdom that's needed to understand the world around us now. Right? What are the idols of our culture? What are the idols of our society now? They've always existed, but they, they have greater prominence at the moment. What are they? And how do we live differently in light of that? Yeah. But I want to, let's keep going. As we surrender these things to God, it's not an easy process, but there is help along the way. And we actually have regular opportunities for help. And that comes back to celebrating God's goodness, remembering his salvation and trusting in his provision by resting in him. Because that's what the Israelites are commanded to do, aren't they? They're told to keep the festivals. They're told with him, with his peace and with his joy. And so as Christmas is around the corner, can I encourage you, there's going to be end-of-year celebrations, office parties and school wrap-ups and whatever else. Slow down. Take the opportunity to pause with gratitude for the salvation that we have in Jesus. And through Jesus, we're invited to enter into this holy covenant with God. Not because we're special, but because he is. He is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you are indeed compassionate and gracious beyond what we can ever imagine. And we ask that as we are reminded of who you are and what you have done and the covenant that you invite us into. That we might again just pause and take a moment to celebrate, to worship, to give thanks for who you are and what you've done. We thank you for the invitation to be with you as you are with us. And we ask that we might continue to know the love and the intimacy that you invite us into in Jesus. And Father, help us as we continue to wrestle with all these things that we might indeed pursue holiness, that we might be made to be more like you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.